I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. My guest is Jeremy Narby. He's a writer and early pioneer of ayahuasca research while living with the Ashaninka people in the Peruvian Amazon back in the 1980s. His books include The Cosmic Serpent and The Psychotropic Mind. His new book is Plant Teachers, Ayahuasca, Tobacco, and the Pursuit of Knowledge, co-authored with indigenous elder Rafael Chanchari Pizuri. So first off, this is an absolutely fascinating book. The idea of plants as teachers is very foreign to modern cultures. And in this book, you lay out both indigenous and scientific ways of considering these teaching plants. Why did you choose to approach it that way? And can these different perspectives complement each other? Well, the job of anthropologists really is to go into different cultures or communities and spend some time there and try to understand their point of view and then come back and try to understand it from 
the academic, uh, scientific, Western point of view. So that's anthropology, uh, at least cultural anthropology, is a kind of a, a two-way conversation or an act of trying to make sense in, in both directions. And so all the books that I've been writing over the years, over the last 30 years, have been about that, trying to understand Amazonian systems of knowledge from a Western point of view, looking at how the two approaches to knowledge may uh, overlap and sometimes where there are, are frictions. And here, in the case of tobacco and ayahuasca, these are two powerful Amazonian plants. Everybody agrees about that. The scientists agree and the Amazonian people agree. So these plants come from South America and the indigenous people who've been living there for a long time have been using these plants for a long time and they have a lot of knowledge about how to work with them. But it's true that the Amazonian way of understanding a plant like tobacco is somewhat different. At least they, they use different words to talk about the power that this plant has. And from a scientific point of view, when we look at a plant like tobacco, we might talk about the molecules it contains. So, you know, the scientific view of plants is somewhat limited by the materialist reductionist view, which is that essentially a plant is a bag of molecules. And if you want to measure it and understand it, the way to go about it is to look inside it and to, to look at the substances that it produces and contains. And Really, that's about as far as science goes. I mean, yeah, there's obviously botanists who are looking at how the plant might behave. There's some opening that's going on. But essentially, considering the plant as a being like us, with a kind of personality like us, a mind, an intention, um, this is going beyond the limits of objective knowledge. and stepping into what science doesn't like, which is attributing what seem to be human attributes to non-humans. And especially with plants, I mean, it's all very well to anthropomorphize a chimpanzee, because after all, we share 99% of our DNA with a chimpanzee. But a plant, when you start personifying plants, scientists become uneasy. So there is a clear friction there around the concept of plant teacher, but still the facts of the matter are as determined on one side or the other of the equation are not that far from each other. When scientists say this is a psychoactive plant, well, the indigenous people say, yes, it is a plant teacher. So what is a plant teacher? It is a plant when you ingest it, it has an impact on your body and on your mind. And if you pay attention to that impact, the people who work with these plants say, you can learn things quite simply. So what is the enormous canyon between that point of view and the point of view that says, oh yes, this plant contains psychoactive molecules, it is a psychoactive plant, and so that when you ingest it, it activates your neurons. Um, it seems to be different ways of referring to probably a very similar phenomenon, but looked at from different angles. And that's 
What I've learned over the years is that once you move beyond the kind of conceptual blockage and you say, okay, we'll suspend disbelief for a little while and just consider that these are two different ways of looking at the same thing that express themselves in, in different language, but that may correspond to complementary bits of knowledge. And that, for example, if we bring together what scientists tell us about nicotine and the other alkaloids inside the tobacco plant and how they impact on our neurons and which receptors they stimulate and just what does go on exactly in the human brain and in the human body when you ingest the tobacco plant, that can be complemented and even enhanced by what Amazonian people say about this plant, which is that it's a very powerful, dangerous teacher that can make you understand certain things, but that can also lead you astray. And working with this plant requires all kinds of preparation and precautions. So, yeah, that would be my attempt to answer your question. Mm, that was absolutely wonderful. I love that. Um, many of us have heard about ayahuasca in our culture, but few of us know anything about the highly complex role of tobacco in the indigenous cultures of the Amazon. Could you tell us more specifically about the ways they see tobacco and their relationship with it and the ways they use it? Yeah, well, I'll try. So here is an Amazonian plant, and there are several species of tobacco. We're mainly talking about Nicotiana tabacum and Nicotiana rustica, and both, it would seem, originate in South America. And Amazonian people have cultivated this plant for millennia, it would seem. And it really is the number one shamanic plant, the number one medicinal plant. Applying tobacco to wounds, blowing tobacco on people who are ill, this is the number one most common a most frequent form of treatment, of medical treatment that indigenous people perform in the Amazon. Well, this plant is 20 times richer in nicotine than the blonde tobacco that European and American people have. I mean, you know, Virginia tobacco. The white man took the powerful indigenous tobacco, and it was too strong. It's hallucinogenic. It gives you visions. It's shamanic. And so they watered it down, selected weaker varieties. And instead of containing 20% nicotine, the blonde tobacco contains maybe 1%. And then what we think of as tobacco, in other words, cigarettes, is sauced up with hundreds of chemicals, many of which turn into dangerous, toxic, carcinogenic substances when they're burned. So what we think of as tobacco is actually a nicotine delivery device constructed by industrial cigarette manufacturers, constructed in a way to deliver just not enough nicotine to give you a real delivery. It's like a motorcycle where you would never put the gear in it would bam, 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 and you, you never actually get the delivery and so that half an hour later you want to light up another one that's what cigarettes are calibrated for to give you just enough nicotine to tickle your neurons but to do nothing more than that 
So they've taken a very powerful teaching plant and weakened it to the point that it no longer gives you anything and then laced it with all kinds of chemicals and turned it into a deadly product. So that's what you get when you meddle and mess with powerful teacher plants. You turn them into these kind of monstrosities, and that's how we think of tobacco. Meanwhile, back in the Amazon, not only is the plant being used because it has demonstrated analgesic properties, it reduces pain. And so if you're in the rainforest and somebody has a wound, the first thing you can do is you take a tobacco leaf and like a, a nicotine patch and you put it on the wound and it reduces pain. But it also, at the uh, levels of nicotine and other alkaloids that it contains, this is a, a powerfully visionary plant. And if you consume a, a dose of powerful shamanic tobacco, you can have visions and it's not something that you puff on for pleasure by, by any means. And shamans across the Amazon use tobacco to understand things, to come up with new strategies, to find solutions, to, to do a diagnostic when somebody is ill, to see clearly. So it is considered the number one medicinal and shamanic plant in the Amazon. And also when people take other psychoactive plants, or teacher plants like ayahuasca, they almost always use tobacco at the same time. Tobacco is the ultimate combo plant and it lends itself well to being used at the same time as other psychoactive plants. So shamans will use tobacco when they are using ayahuasca, for example, and tobacco also functions as an MAO inhibitor and so it can enhance the visionary qualities of other psychoactive plants. So there it is. On the one hand, among indigenous Amazonian people, it's right at the heart of their systems of knowledge. So how do you know what you know? Well, we have tabaqueros, we have ayahuasqueros who take tobacco or ayahuasca, and then they see. And what they see is the people inside other species, inside plants, inside animals. You see what you don't usually see with your ordinary gaze, which is the pretty concrete kinship that we have with other species. So tobacco and ayahuasca are plants that are as important for Amazonian people as one could say microscopes and telescopes are for scientists. They really are the tools that you will find in the center of the lab. And so clearly when Trying to talk about this to Western audiences who are only familiar with industrial cigarettes, it's a stretch, that's for sure. That's absolutely fascinating. It sounds like tobacco acts as a kind of a portal between species and allows for levels of communication that, that at least in our culture, seem impossible or beyond. Well, that's exactly right. and. Different anthropologists have spoken about this, saying what shamans do, uh, they are diplomats that go between human beings and the other species. And precisely, plants like tobacco and ayahuasca allow them to do this. They're the means of transcending the communication barrier that we have with other species. Uh, you say portal, but 
another metaphor could be like a telephone, really. They allow you to communicate from the shamanic point of view with the other species of plants and animals and to understand more clearly the impact that humans have on the world around us. And that is how Amazonian shamans see things and then how they, how they practice. In their view, when people get ill, illness is like an invisible agent inside the cosmic web of relations that also includes plants, animals, landscape, and humans. And so having a healthy human community also means negotiating with this web of life. And those who go and do the negotiating are the shamans working with these plants. Talk about how tobacco acts as an amplifier of intent and also what Rafael Chanchari says about tobacco having two souls. Well, I'll start with the, the second part. My co-author, Rafael Chanchari Pisuri, is somebody who's worked for decades with these plants. And so he's a fairly reliable source of information. And in his view, all of these teacher plants, because there's about 50 different species of plants that people consider as teachers in the Peruvian Amazon. And he says that all of these plants have what he calls two souls or they are ambiguous or can be used for healing or harming. And at first, with our Western categories, we may think, wait a second, what's going on here? It's true that in Amazonian concepts, categories like good and evil are more permeable than they would be in our culture. In their view, the invisible entities that shamans contact in their visions and from which they get knowledge and power are fundamentally ambiguous. And they're not entirely good or entirely evil. They can go both ways. I think that a good analogy would be to consider that, like we would say, a power tool. We have a hard time saying a plant teacher, but we could say, okay, well, these plants are like power tools. So it's a metaphor, but it's not a bad one, especially for people who think tools are important. Well, a chainsaw is a power tool. And a chainsaw can be extremely double-edged in the sense that, you know, you can do the Texas Chainsaw Massacre if you want, and you can also do some useful work around the yard if you want. It really does depend on your intention and on your know-how on how to use it. You've got to learn how to use a chainsaw. You can't just fire it up and start using it. That's dangerous. I mean, actually, you might cut your own leg off. So this is how Amazonian people consider plant teachers. Oftentimes, so people might have heard, okay, ayahuasca, tobacco, and the Amazonians say, oh, the mother of ayahuasca, the mother of tobacco, who's this? Ah, the spirit that presides over the plant. And it may sound all very wonderful, but actually, in their view, the entity inside and above tobacco, the mother of tobacco, the owner of tobacco, is a, is a fundamentally ambiguous and powerful entity that can mislead you, that can kick your butt, that can also give you important and interesting information. So 
there is not a sort of starry-eyed understanding of the sort of goodwill of these agencies. These are powerful, dangerous, ambiguous plants. And if you're going to work with them, you have to know what you're doing. Could you talk about your experience with tobacco and also the experience you had with an Ashaninka tobacco shaman where you had the sensation of actually turning into a jaguar yourself? Yeah, it's funny, you know, it's an experience that I didn't talk about for at least 30 years. And then when Rafael and I started working on this book, I thought it would be appropriate to mention it. I mean, the first thing to say is that I'm not a tobacco person. I wasn't 36 years ago when I was living with Ashaninka people and doing my field work as a young anthropologist. And I'm still not a tobacco person to this day. I know a lot of tobacco smokers, but it's just not a plant that calls me. But living with Ashaninka people in the middle of the Peruvian Amazon, and this was 1985, these are people, their word for shaman is sheri piari. Sheri means tobacco. In other words, the healer or the, the one who knows is the person who takes tobacco. So that's how tobacco and knowledge go together where they live. And one day I was with my main informant, a 45-year-old Ashaninka man who himself was a practicing tobacco shaman, a tabaquero. And he wanted to go and visit his old teacher, who was so old that he didn't even know his age because he was born before the Ashaninka learned to count in the early 20th century. And when I, I met this old Ashaninka man, all wrinkled and, and just sitting on a mat in his cotton gown, he had a small gourd with a stick in it. And this was his tobacco paste gourd. And tobacco paste is like a thick jam that they make by slowly boiling tobacco leaves down into this paste. And it's very powerful. So you take this little stick and dip it into the paste, and then you run the stick through your inner lips, and voila. And the old man, actually, before anything, uh, he started playing around with me. He asked me like 20 times in a row whether I was his father-in-law in Ashaninka. And I thought I'd play along with him and answer his question, yes, 20 times. I learned later on that day that that question meant, can I sleep with your daughters? And, you know, he was more than 80 years old and I was only 25. So clearly the, the joke was on me at that point. But I thought, OK, I'll put an end to the old man's shtick here and I'll ask him if I can try his tobacco paste. And it's true, I was kind of curious just to see what the old boy was eating. And so I ran the stick through my lips, and then I sat to the side and let the two gentlemen get on with their business. And, you know, when you do anthropology, sometimes you just sit there, you don't know what, you don't understand what people are talking about, you think about nothing much, you're sort of staring into space, and, you know, after about 15 minutes of staring into space and looking at the chickens that were sort of clucking around, suddenly I... I started feeling like my teeth were getting sharper. I had like a, a taste of blood in my mouth and it, it tasted good. I feel like I had whiskers coming out the side of my face that allowed me to perceive the environment more clearly. I had a kind of a, a warm 
predatory feeling in my gut, I started looking at these chickens and decided not to attack them. You know, it was a very body-based, predatory, warm, exhilarating feeling of somehow, well, it was a feline feeling. And, you know, I, I didn't even think that such a thing was possible. I didn't believe in that kind of thing. But still, when your body, when you, you start to feel through the, the warmth in your body, through the way you're looking at the chickens, to the taste in your mouth, to the sharpness of your own teeth, according to the tongue that you run over them. Well, uh, you know, I make no claim that I actually really did transform into a jaguar. That's not the point. It's more that it makes you feel like you're one for a little while. And it lasted maybe 15 minutes, but it was a very intense experience. And then I just didn't talk about it, really, to anybody for decades, because it was just too weird. You know, I didn't even believe it myself, really, except that it was so intense and real and powerful and interesting that I found that I could actually tap into it at will years later, even today, 36 years later, my body thinks it really knows what it might feel like to be a big jungle cat. I can conjure up that point of view or feeling. I can feel it behind my eyes, inside my belly button. I can feel it. And if I want to channel a kind of a fierce cat, I can do it. Okay, maybe in my imagination. But imagination is not nothing. It's powerful. I've used this capacity to conjure up that feeling before doing public speaking, for example. In other words, getting into that place of detachment from the people who are there and a kind of a fierce stance where the job at hand is simply to say what I mean without getting nervous, without feeling other people's gaze on me, getting to a space where I couldn't care less, at least, you know, convincing myself that I couldn't care less what people think about what I say, how I look, whatever. And I think that getting into that detached space can enhance public speaking. And I'd just like to say that this tobacco experience at the root of what I'm talking about was a one-off experience. I have never wanted to repeat it. You know, once you can conjure up a jaguar inside you at will, what's the point of doing it 20 times? You know, if it's a telephone, you know, I got the message, thank you very much, and then you hang up. The point is not to be on the phone all the time. It's that once you get the message, you go ahead and lead your life. So this powerful and troubling, but certainly enriching experience with tobacco did not lead me to become a consumer of tobacco by any means. And it's only very recently that I've got up the courage to even speak about the experience. I'm talking with Jeremy Narby. He's an early pioneer of ayahuasca research, and his new book that we're talking about is Plant Teachers, Ayahuasca, Tobacco, and the Pursuit of Knowledge, 
co-authored with Indigenous elder Rafael Chanchari Pizuri. It's interesting how there's a strong connection between tobacco and jaguars in the indigenous cultures of the Amazon. Yeah, well, you know, I kind of hint at a possible explanation for rationally inclined people, even though I'm a little hesitant to sort of, you know, boil it all down to molecules. But still, it came to me as we were putting this little book together, because when you then do go onto the scientific side of the equation, you say, okay, so what does the nicotine do once it gets inside the body? Well, it goes into the brains, it locks into the nicotinic receptors, and then this is the receptor for acetylcholine, which is a brain hormone, which then goes on to impact on other brain receptors and setting off other brain hormones like serotonin and also body hormones like adrenaline. So powerful tobacco, first of all, it makes your heart beat faster. So your blood rushes around faster, hence the feeling of warmth. The heart beats faster because it actually stimulates the production of adrenaline. And so nicotine itself sets off a kind of a cocktail of hormonal reactions in your brain and in your body. It gives you pleasure. It gives you happiness. It gives you warmth. It gives you a blood rush. It also increases levels of testosterone. So you get this kind of energetic, warm, slightly aggressive energy going through your body. And yeah, I think that a, an appropriate metaphor, how do you put a word on it? You know, if you're just a, a shaman in the Amazon, you don't know about adrenaline and dopamine and acetylcholine and so forth. But you do know that it kind of makes you feel like a jaguar, you know. So now I don't mean to say that all these physiological reactions explain jaguar transformation with tobacco. But I think that they're probably a necessary part of it. And it, it makes me think of something that Rafael Chanchari said when we were talking about, I was actually quizzing him on the mother of tobacco. So this entity that's inside tobacco, the personality of tobacco. And at one point he mentioned the substance inside the plant that makes you see vision. So he was referring to nicotine. So I said, well, what do you think is the relation between the mother of tobacco and nicotine. And he said, well, clearly we need nicotine and neurons to perceive the mother of tobacco. In other words, there is no opposition between recognizing that there are molecules like nicotine and that they impact on neurons inside our brain and perceiving the mother of tobacco. In fact, you, you need to stimulate your neurons with nicotine if you want to perceive her. Well, likewise, I think that for a shaman to experience jaguar transformation with tobacco, th there must be a role for nicotine impacting on his neurons and setting off all these different hormonal reactions in the shaman's body. So that's what I'd say. So it's like these particular hormones are, are opening new doorways. Well, you know, like if you've ever had something like 
almost a car accident or even a car accident. So you get a big rush of adrenaline. Whether it actually opens a doorway, you know, depends what you mean by doorway, but it's certainly, you know, your heart beats faster. You see things more intensely. It can get you to concentrate more. And it also kind of makes you nervous and, and somewhat aggressive. So it changes you. It changes how you perceive and how you experience. And then you know, usually a big rush of adrenaline once it kind of it goes down and, and then you calm down and, and then you get over it. So it's not a sort of a big deal. But when you experience it, it's not necessarily a doorway to another world or something, but it certainly does propulse you into another kind of form of body, mind, consciousness for a while. And that's always interesting, I think. So, you know, I, I'm afraid of tobacco, really, and especially strong tobacco. I mean, it makes you nauseous if you're not used to it. I can feel it, it makes me all hot and makes my heart beat. And it's, it's almost too much. Like, some people like tobacco because it allows them to concentrate and think faster and more clearly. But I actually don't experience it like that. And I think there probably is something like... You know, the friends of my friends are not necessarily my friends. That With plants, it's like that. There, there are plants that work for some people and that just don't work for, for other people. So speaking about tobacco on the basis of my experience is not very satisfactory because I don't really have a big experience with the plant. Yeah, I got that sense that tobacco is something very potentially dangerous and probably outside the scope of what a modern Westerner would want to actually attempt to work with. Well, yeah, I think you're probably mainly right. That said, because, you know, there's like 1.2 billion cigarette smokers in the world. So even though it's a watered down product, etc., these are still people who, to a certain extent, have a relationship with the plant ingest bits of the plant regularly. It's true. So, you know, and I live in Switzerland. There are a lot of tobacco smokers around here. I've actually several times, I I thought that I would do people a favor and I would introduce these cigarette smokers to bona fide shamanic tobacco in vaporized form. And actually, it's strong. You get a hit. It tastes nothing like a cigarette. You, you find out that what they like in cigarettes is the burned kind of caramelly, tarry taste. They like the taste of the tar and the burned sugar. You know, camel cigarettes comes from caramel because they put a lot of sugar in there. And so that, you know, when you burn the cigarette, you're getting, well, burned sugar, which is caramel, and you're getting tar. And that kind of tarry, caramelly taste is what people like. But when you vaporize real tobacco, it tastes nothing like that. There are no tars because you're vaporizing. There's no caramel because there's no sugar. And you get the true taste of the plant's volatile substances and so on. And it doesn't taste at all like a cigarette. It's, it's kind of peppery and sharp. And it's also very strong. You take a couple of hits of the vapor of shamanic tobacco and your head is spinning. And oddly enough, all the tobacco smokers that I've tried, you know, in, introducing this to, 
They're just not takers. They're not interested. It kind of does confirm what you're saying is that actually if you took most of the world's smokers and said, hey, try it this way, work with the real plant, do it in a healthy way, don't do it every half hour, but take it seriously, do it shaman style, you know, ritualize it, make something special of it, do it in the evenings and do it just not when you're watching TV, you're doing something else, but do it like a kind of a meditation. And if you're really going to work with this powerful plant, you know, take it seriously. That most people would probably not go down that path. Still, I think there's something to learn, which is that, yes, it is a powerful plant. It's probably, if one is going to work with it, it's probably worth working with real tobacco, not adulterated by the industry, and also not doing it all day long, but limiting the consumption. So ritualizing it to meet to a ritual is to limit in space and time. It means you don't just do it any old moment, but at specific moments in a specific place with a specific intention. And you can even work with blonde tobacco, as long as it's not adulterated with chemicals, do it in the evening. Rafael Chanchari says it is possible to work with tobacco in this way. In other words, I think that cigarette smokers could clean up their habit by inspiring themselves from the Amazonian approach to this plant. I'm talking with Jeremy Narby. He's an early pioneer of ayahuasca research and his new book that we're talking about is Plant Teachers, Ayahuasca, Tobacco, and the Pursuit of Knowledge, co-authored with indigenous elder Rafael Chanchari Puzuri. So let's jump to ayahuasca. And like tobacco, there are different types of ayahuasca. Could you talk about them and also the story that Rafael Chanchari told you about his unwitting encounter with sorcery and how he later found out about what had happened and what he learned from that? Yeah, well, ayahuasca is a vine that grows in the Amazonian rainforest, and it contains several psychoactive alkaloids, harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharmine, but it's also the basis of a psychoactive tea to which many different psychoactive plants can be added. And this brew is also known as ayahuasca. So ayahuasca is both a vine that contains a complex chemistry, and it's also a brew that is a kind of a psychoactive cocktail. So it can contain tobacco or coca or datura or psychotria viridis. So it can contain nicotine or scopolamine or cocaine or dimethyltryptamine. So ayahuasca can be many things. I think it needs to be thought of as something like the word cocktail. You know, so what's in the cocktail? Well, it depends who made it. Depends what was on hand. Depends what they wanted to do. So there are many different kinds of ayahuasca. It's just like there's no standard cocktail. There is no standard ayahuasca. Meanwhile, the ayahuasca vines themselves, the, the only necessary part in an Amazonian ayahuasca brew is the ayahuasca vine. It can't be ayahuasca if it doesn't contain the vine, but it can contain many other plants. 
the vine itself, there are different kinds of vines. Science only recognizes one kind for the moment and calls it Banisteriopsis capi. But indigenous people across the Amazon recognize many different sorts of vine. So yellow ayahuasca, black ayahuasca, thunder ayahuasca, mariri ayahuasca. And these are vines that have subtle visual differences and that also have different characteristics. But this is something that is not studied by science for the moment, or I think there's just research that's started to look into this just very recently in Brazil. Because oddly enough, people around, not just Amazonian, indigenous Amazonian people, but colonists in the Amazon, people who've been there for generations, this is a folk taxonomy that is widely shared across the Amazon basin. And yet, science took a long time to look into it. If we listen to the Amazonian practitioners like Rafael Chanchari, they'll tell you that certain kinds of ayahuasca are good for healing people and others are good for harming them. In other words, practicing sorcery and in particular, black ayahuasca. And so in this view, it's important to be careful just what kind of ayahuasca you dabble with. And Rafael's recommendation is, well to kick the tires, as it were. And anytime you're going to drink ayahuasca, you, you really do gain from knowing who made it and what they put in it. What kind of ayahuasca vine is it? And what other additives were put in the brew? So, and it's true. Rafael tells the story that he was curious as a young person about ayahuasca. And so he finally decided to try some on his own. And he tried some on his own for several times. And then he met a, an old guy, a member of his tribe the, among the Shawi people, who agreed to teach him. And so he became the fellow's apprentice, as it were. And so he spent about a month living with this old guy, and they drank ayahuasca together a series of times. And one night, as they were together, the old ayahuasquero started scolding him, saying, right in the middle of their ayahuasca session together, why are you learning sorcery? This is going to take you into a bad place. You're going to end up killing people, and you yourself will finally be killed. Why are you doing this? And the next day, when everybody had returned to normal consciousness, Rafael says that he asked the old man why he was saying this. And the old man told him that it had become very clear to him during the session that by taking ayahuasca without guidance, that Rafael was starting down a path where he would end up doing harm to people and that he had to get hold of himself. He had to purify himself and clarify his intention. And the old man said that he would assist him and do this and so went ahead. And that's what they worked on. And he really did focus Rafael's mind on the importance of being clear, having a clear intent of healing, and not just doing it because you want to see and so on, and maybe maybe get something from it. That it's necessary to focus the intention of learning from the plant with a clear, constructive, and healing outlook. Otherwise, it can mislead you. So that's what Raphael learned early on, and that's what he transmits to people. I would love for you to describe Raphael's ayahuasca training with that teacher, Maestro Fermin, and how ayahuasca works with people 
poor learning to work with it and also how he almost gave up on it. Well, what Raphael reports is that the plant shows you innumerable things. So there you are, you, you have these 15 ayahuasca sessions in 30 days. It's enormous. And in each session, you see these images and films about yourself, your life, and even all the life in the cosmos. He says that it's an ordeal because you see all the pain in the universe, all the deaths, all the suffering, and you see all of these things that you've never thought about. And at one point, he says that he felt that it was too much, that it was relentless and so heavy. And it was mainly all the suffering in the world that he could see that made him doubt that this was a path for him. And he almost told his teacher, Maestro Fermin, that he was going to give up. And then he decided, no, okay, I'll try one more time to see what comes up. And that evening, they took ayahuasca again, and it was the best, his best time, and, and all the suffering was behind, and then he saw all the other positive possibilities. And so he says that the path of learning with ayahuasca is filled with ordeals like this and with obstacles that you have to get over. And Maestro Fermin, meanwhile, is behind him and encouraging him so, for example, at one point, Maestro Fermin encouraged him to learn how to contact deceased people. And as with the telephone, so you're in your visions and you call the name of the person. And then you watch an entity show up and communicate with you. And so Rafael says that he called different people that he knew were dead and some would come and talk to him and say, ah, you're learning how to talk with the dead. Very good. Uh, you'll learn a lot of things that way and then go away. But at one point, one dead shaman showed up and said, who are you to call me? You're disturbing me. I'm busy right now. And because you've disturbed me, now you're going to die. And Raphael had been told by Maestro Fermin that he had to defend himself. And so he replied, no, I was just practicing getting in touch with you, and that's no reason to kill anybody, and there is no reason that I should die. And meanwhile, Maestro Fermin was next to Rafael with his physical body, blowing tobacco smoke on him and saying, yes, that's right, that's how you defend yourself. And so the apprenticeship is going into this unusual world of disincarnate entities and intelligences that come at you. Some can be good, others can be less good, and then you have to learn how to interact with them and not get too affected by them. And so this is the long and hard path of becoming an ayahuasca shaman, according to Rafael Chanchari. It's fascinating how you again brought up blowing tobacco smoke, and in this case, during an ayahuasca ceremony. Can you talk about the effect of tobacco in that way and what its role is? Mm, yeah, you know, 
One thing is that tobacco is the ultimate combo plant. In other words, in many different places around the world, it tends to get combined with other psychoactive substances. When people drink alcohol, they'll tend to smoke tobacco. When people smoke hashish, they'll tend to mix it with tobacco. When people take ayahuasca, they'll tend to use tobacco. And this is very clear in the Amazon, I don't know, 99.9% of indigenous Amazonian shamans wouldn't dream of taking ayahuasca without tobacco on the side. I mean, most sessions, they start by blowing tobacco smoke into the bottle that contains the ayahuasca to energize it. Tobacco is there, they say, because it also protects practitioners from outside influences. And here, science is useful because it shows that nicotine is also an MAO inhibitor. And so as such, it actually enhances the effect of a psychoactive brew like like ayahuasca. So shamans, ayahuasca shamans use tobacco to modulate the experience to when the ayahuasca's effects starts going down, you smoke tobacco and you can make the ayahuasca effect go back up again. But what they will also do is blow smoke on people who are participating in the session as a form of protection. And if only it protects you against insects, people will smoke tobacco as they walk through the rainforest to keep snakes away. It has multiple uses. So it's not just a medicinal plant and it's not just used by shamans to modulate their their visionary experiences, but it's used to protect people and to keep dangerous entities at bay. So getting back to ayahuasca, in addition to its psychotropic effects, could you talk about the more physiological health benefits of drinking ayahuasca? Yeah, well, science is really just discovering the physiological benefits of drinking ayahuasca. And I think that's the first thing that needs to be said. The science of ayahuasca is fairly recent, really in the last 20 years. And it's becoming clear, ayahuasca has great potential as an antidepressant. And it's under development right now in Brazil in that sense. It's also shown itself to be fairly effective with people who have post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety and perhaps addictions as well. But that said, the ingredients of the vine, the alkaloids, harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharmine, which have been somewhat understudied because science kind of charged down the, the lane where they thought, oh, the active ingredient is DMT. But in fact, DMT is contained in one of the additive plants, and it's not a necessary component of ayahuasca, but that's another story. These beta-carboline alkaloids, which are harmine, harmaline, and so on, have major health-enhancing effects. They uh, strengthen the immune system. They're antibacterial, possibly even anti-tumor, anti-Parkinsonian, anti-Alzheimer, They may create new neurons. I mean, these are seriously promising substances. And it seems that the whole idea of the ayahuasca brew, which is a cocktail, so it's not just a single substance like harming, because this is how science tends to operate. It kind of 
wants to isolate the active ingredient and then turn it into a pure substance and then market it and voila. But actually, ayahuasca is a therapeutic cocktail. It has different alkaloids that have different health enhancing effects and that are, well, it's the entourage effect, which is that the different molecules enhance one another and their respective effects. And this is only just starting to be understood right now. So yes, it does seem that the vine itself, without the powerful hallucinogen DMT, but just the vine itself, is a very health-enhancing drink. But I think more research is needed before we can have any absolute certitudes on the matter. Mm -hmm. Ayahuasca is known as the purge. Could you talk about the range of the purging effects of ayahuasca? Oh, boy. Yeah, nice question. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I tell you what, it can come out both ends of the tube at the same time. If the, You know, the range of the purge is, uh, you know, it's a full range. It can purge you downstairs. It can purge you upstairs. You know, it, it really does work. What also goes on in the purging, like in Ashaninka, the word for ayahuasca, kamarampi, contains the verb kamarank, which means vomit. You know, the word for ayahuasca is the vomit. And in their view, vomiting is positive. It gets rid of stuff that, that shouldn't be there. And we're talking toxins from eating all kinds of wild animals, but what people report, and even non-Amazonian people, just Westerners who drink ayahuasca, what also gets purged is painful memories, difficult experiences or relations, deep tensions. So it's, it's also an energetic purge. And, you know, if you think of when you change the oil to your automobile, that kind of purge, you know, you take out all the old oil and then you put some fresh oil in and that's good for the car. Well, in the Amazonian view, we are like vehicles and we need to purge occasionally. Otherwise, we just carry all this gunk around with us. So that is first and foremost, the use of ayahuasca. And it's true, the rainforest is a place where people have a lot of stomach parasites. And so, you know, that it makes basic sense to sort of just clean out the tubes once in a while. So there it is. Science, meanwhile, would say, okay, well, ayahuasca is a psychedelic. Now, psychedelic means a revealer of psyche. And it may well be true that ayahuasca is also a revealer of psyche. But first and foremost, it's a purge that cleans out your body. In other words, you know, it's much more body-based than the word psychedelic would lead you to believe. So what's your sense of how ayahuasca sees us and why does it work with us, both indigenous and modern humans? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a tough question because I certainly do not deny the possibility that plants have consciousness that might somehow be similar to ours, which is what your question implies. But I think having much certitude about what a specific plant might have in mind is is almost too soon, really. So that's my personal opinion. Amazonian shamans don't have such qualms. 
And you can ask them that question, and I have asked them that question, and they have pretty similar answers. And essentially their view is that plants have been around longer than people, and including the teacher plants like ayahuasca and tobacco. And plants in general consider people like grandparents consider their children, which is they like to be useful to them. They don't know how to say no to them. They're just very generous. And that's how it is. So when people go to plants and say, help us, help us, heal us, give us this, give us that, the plants are only too pleased to oblige. Well, that may be a personification by Amazonian people. It's certainly true that when, if you have a garden, you can see how generous plants are. Sometimes some plants, the, the more you harvest them, the, the more they'll give. There really is that notion of generosity in the vegetal world. And, and actually, we can, we can thank the plants for providing the, the origin of all the food that we eat. I mean, they're, they're always busy downloading solar energy and producing what all other animals live on. So 99% of the planet's biomass is vegetal. So the numbers really do confirm the exuberance and the generosity of the vegetal world. And that's about as much as I can say, but I also mean that I think the question is really valid, and I think it's important not to rush to conclusions, to keep it all open, to keep on asking that question. The more we think about things from the plant's point of view, I think the better off we are. It's, it's not, that, not that we can be sure of what they're thinking, but I think it's, it's worth making the effort and trying to see from their point of view, if only to understand that we're in a world with them, and instead of just treating them like a bunch of objects with whom we have no relation beside using them, that they are also beings like us. We do have DNA kinship with them. They do exist like we do, and they are sentient beings that perceive and remember and so forth. And they no doubt do have a point of view. The question is just, what is their point of view? And that is a I think a huge question that people will be working on for hundreds of years forward. Mm -hmm. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much. This has been a f utterly fascinating conversation. Well, thanks, Tonio. Very good and difficult questions. <laughs> you made me work, but it was a pleasure. Jeremy Narby is a writer and early pioneer of ayahuasca research while living with the Ashaninka people in the Peruvian Amazon in the 1980s. His books include The Cosmic Serpent and The Psychotropic Mind. His new book that we've been talking about is Plant Teachers, Ayahuasca, Tobacco, and the Pursuit of Knowledge that he co-authored with indigenous elder Rafael Chanchari Pazuri.
I was awake, dreaming of new dystopias to run to and hide within, and new faces to wear, and new bodies to inhabit, and new lies to guzzle. And how I love the moon, and its sheets of seeds, the moon tiding in your body, the smell of your blood breathing, and its taste in the sea in the south shining my feet, till it seemed as if they were made of dew. With pearls of huge beauty, whilst your mouse-like breath was the hand upon my clock, and one each breath I came nearer to my silly and shining end. was in the middle of a riot in a classroom. A furious mob was raging about, throwing chairs and fighting with each other. And the Goliath among them, a huge, repulsive barbarian with a pockmarked face, had me locked in an iron grip. I was desperately trying to get away. And here I was, face to face, with as real an ogre as you'd ever want to meet. But at this point, I realized I was dreaming. Remembering what I'd previously learned from handling similar situations, I stopped struggling, because I knew that the conflict was with myself. I assumed that the ogre was a dream personification of something I wanted to deny in myself. Experience had shown me that in the dream world, at least, the best way to bring hate and conflict to an end was to love my enemies as myself. When I realized I was dreaming, I remembered all this in a flash. So, I tried to feel loving as I faced my ogre. At first, I failed completely, feeling only revulsion and disgust. My gut reaction said he was simply too ugly and barbarous to love. But I tried to ignore the image and seek love within my own heart. Finding it, I looked at my ogre in the eyes, trusting my intuition to supply the right things to say. Beautiful words of acceptance flowed out of me, and as they did, he melted into me. As for the riot, it had vanished without a trace. The dream faded, and I awoke.
I was riding on the Mayflower and I thought I'd spot some land. I yelled for Captain E. Rib, I have you understand. Who came running to the deck? Said, boys, forget the wheel. We're going over yonder, cut the engines, change the sails. Haul on the bowline, we sang that melody like all tough sailors do when they're far away at sea. I think I'll call it America, I said as we hit land I took a deep breath, I fell down, I could not stand Captain Arab, he started writing up some deeds He said let's set up a fort and start buying a place with beads Just then this cop comes down the street crazy as a loon He throws us all in jail for carrying hoppers Ah, me, I busted out, don't even ask me how I went to get some help, I walked by Guernsey Cow Who directed me down to the Bowery slums Where people carried signs around, saying ban the bums I jumped right in the line, saying I hope that I'm not late When I realized I had eaten for five days straight Looking for the cook I told him I was the editor Of a famous etiquette book The waitress, he was handsome He wore a powder blue cape I ordered some Suzette I said, could you please make that crepe Just then the whole kitchen Exploded from boiling fat Food was flying everywhere I left without my hat But I went into a bank To get some bail for a rap And all the boys back in the tank They asked me for some collateral And I pulled down my pants They threw me in the alley When up comes this girl from France Who invited me to her house I went but she had a friend Who knocked me out and robbed my boots And I was on the street again Well, I wrapped upon a house with the U.S. flag upon display I said, could you help me out? I got some friends down the way The man says, get out of here, I'll tear you limb from limb I said, you know they refused Jesus too He said, you're not him Get out of here before I break your bones, I ain't your pop I decided to have him arrested and I went looking for a cop Inside a cab, I went out the other door. This Englishman said, Fab, as he saw me leap a hot dog stand in a chariot that stood parked across from a building advertising Brotherhood. I ran right through the front door like a hobo sailor does, but it was just a funeral parlor, and a man asked me who I was. I repeated that my friends were all in jail with a sign 
He gave me his card. He said, call me if they die. I shook his hand and said goodbye. Ran out to the street when a bowling ball came down the road and knocked me off my feet. A payphone was ringing. It just about blew my mind. When I picked it up and said hello, this foot came through the line. Well, by this time I was fed up at trying to make a stab At bringing back any help for my friends and Captain Arab I decided to flip a coin like either heads or tails But let me know if I should go back to ship or back to jail So I parked my sailor suit and I got a coin to flip It came up tails around my sail so I made it back to the ship Well, I got back and took the parking ticket off the mast I was ripping it to shreds when this Coast Guard boat went past They asked me my name and I said Captain Kidd They believed me but they wanted to know what exactly that I did I said for the Pope of Ebrook I was employed They let me go right away, they were very paranoid Well, the last I heard of Arab, he was stuck on a whale That was married to the deputy sheriff of the jail But the funniest thing was when I was leaving the bay I saw three ships sailing, they were all heading my way I asked the captain what his name was and how come he didn't drive a truck He said his name was Columbus, I just said good luck Thank you.
about to begin.
it is, it wouldn't be, and what it wouldn't be, it would. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. And that's where all my ups and downs begin. Floated away through the keyhole into the strangest world you've ever seen. It went backwards as well as forwards, and nobody won. Nonsense! what it wouldn't be, it would. Why, in my world... And I was getting lost in the woods all over again. And to make matters worse, the forest paths around me were as mixed up as I was. somewhere made sense somehow. And when I came up for air, there I 